Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, welcome to Parenting the Adlerian Way. I'm your host, Adlerian family counselor and parenting expert, Allison Schaefer. Each week, I answer your burning parenting questions to help reduce the stress of parenting one tip at a time. We'll explore Adlerian psychology together and learn methods of child guidance for raising a happy, confident, capable, resilient child. Hi, it's Allison. Welcome back to the podcast. As you know, many of the provinces have instituted the closure of schools and the introduction of online schooling. Some of you have been chipping away at this since September, maybe some of you even as far back as March. But I know it is definitely an ongoing challenging concern for not only our students, for the teachers who are in this new format, and for the parents who are supposed to be somehow overseeing, supervising, and making sure this all happens. And so I thought this would be a wonderful opportunity for me to invite uh, Lauren Barr on to chat with us. I actually met Lauren for the first time back at the beginning of the pandemic, and we were co-panelists for a public forum to help parents with online learning that was hosted by the Blythe Academy. And while we had different trainings, different backgrounds and hadn't met, it was very clear at the end of our panel that we were both very like-minded in our approaches. And so I thought she'd be a wonderful addition to help more parents out there with our conversation today. So let me introduce Lauren Barr and, um, share a little bit of her background with you. So Lauren is a social innovator. She's a sociologist, a youth advocate, and an award-winning educator in the Department of Sociology at Western University. Her career has evolved through 20 years of positions in both healthcare and education. She has an honors degree in sociology, a master's degree in sociology, and a bachelor of education. And as if she's not already accomplished enough, she's also um, engaged right now with two in-progress degrees, one in sociology or PhD and uh, a further MA in education in educational curriculum and pedagogy. She's experienced firsthand being a teacher, working with K to 12 and in post-secondary, both in person and in this new online environment. And she regularly mentors students with life planning. Lauren's academic work has a strong focus on understanding the experience of individuals within institutions. 
both her research and teaching reflect on the social treatment of people, deconstructing labels, and working to intentionally foster empathy with the goal of creating more inclusive, equitable, and empowering cultures. In her mind, research and knowledge are used to offer creative and applicable solutions to the social problems that we face. And currently, her focus is researched on examining how well we're supporting young people in their progress through education and into their careers. And just so you know, she's also a mother of two boys, eight and 12, who challenge and inspire her every day and who may pop in during the podcast <laughs> as they're at home learning too. And so her family has actually been in the um, schooling from home since March, 2020. And uh, that's all been going on while Lauren continues to teach herself and act as the instructional designer and teaching support to the faculty at Western University and still doing her own schooling. So, <laughs> welcome to the podcast, Lauren. Thanks for making the time in your super busy schedule. <laughs> this is the fun stuff. <laughs> oh, good. This is, the, this is the break from everything else. Yeah, I, really, exactly. I really appreciate it. Well, maybe a good starting point is to ask you, from your perspective and experience, what are you seeing out there, both from the students, the, the teachers and the families in terms of how they're dealing with this new set of challenges during the pandemic? So teaching at Western, I teach first year um, and then I teach upper years as well. And it was interesting when we were first starting in September because I found that the upper year students seemed more anxious than the first year students, which um, is usually the reverse. And I think part of that had to do with first year students already expecting there to be a transition and knowing that they, they don't know what's coming and that kind of thing. So they already had that mindset um, that they were gonna have to figure out how to navigate this. Whereas my upper year students, you know, it's kind of like you're back to the normal, but it's not normal. Um, and so there was a lot of emailing and questions and stress around tests that you didn't normally have. Um, so I've noticed that they seem to be settling in, I think, over the term. So hopefully um, second term is a little easier for them, I think. In terms of talking to parents, I, in my own world, um, everyone's kind of had to make tough decisions and everyone's decisions have been very different, um, depending on how old your children are and what your own job is like, right? Some people didn't have a choice. They had to send their kids back in September. Other ones um, started with the remote learning. I know a few families that went straight to homeschooling. Um, so there's been a lot of variety, but it seems to come in waves almost as changes happen. There's like these rises of anxiety and then, and then people settle in again. So that's kind of been what I've noticed so far. And how about the teachers? Now you're working with professors. If you're working at the university level, um, how are they? How are they coping with this new format? So I was coaching um, instructors throughout the summer last summer. Uh, first, for many of them, it was a huge transition because they'd never taught online before. Um, so it requires figuring out how do you how do you transfer what you would normally do in a classroom in you know into this online environment. We were trying to go by guidelines for online teaching, but it's interesting because this isn't a normal online experience. Um, and so some of the best practices we would normally say have turned out not to work as well as we would think. So we would normally say online, you should have kind of smaller constant assessments, for example, so that students have time to kind of grow and get feedback. 
But then in listening to students, they were saying I had so many small assignments that it was overwhelming and I couldn't really focus in on any one of them. Um, so I think it's this constant readjustment that we're having to do right now. In the in the public schools and the, in the sec secondary schools, again, it's the same, right? Things are changing. They're having they're doing hybrid classes. Some students are in person, some are online. You know, in high school, they're they're with them for the full day, which they're not used to. So it's been interesting watching the conversations. A lot of movement and adjustments as we're going. And uh, I think that's where we have to be uh, empathetic and compassionate with all parties involved mm -hmm. in that, you know, everybody's trying to do their best. And that when we use the former, to your point, best practices or former standards or methodologies, they don't necessarily translate into the current situations. And yet we still have this expectation that, you know, kindergartners should sit in front of their screen and do synchronous learning for six and a half hours. Right. And that's, that's really developmentally, you know, in, inappropriate for their mm -hmm. little antsy pantsy need to, to engage socially and in, in real life. And, uh, and I, I feel for teachers who spend a lot of time doing uh, uh, personal development, professional development, going to teacher's college, and yet we expected the learning curve and the ability to translate all of this, you know, so quickly. And now suddenly there's parent eyeballs on the other side of the screen. I know I have a friend who says, oh boy, I'm, I really take pride in my, um, uh, in my classroom skills and I feel really proud as a teacher. And yet now I'm being judged by these parents who are sitting in on my classroom in a way that I would never conduct a classroom if, we, if you were really to visit me in a bricks and mortar situation. Um, and uh, it's, I know it's, that's been a real challenge. Yeah, the walls have come down in all directions, right? You can see into people's lives. They can see what you're doing. Um, I know as a sociologist, I've heard many colleagues talk about some of our content can be quite sensitive, um, somewhat politically debatable. Um, and so, you know, they've had parents kind of in the background speaking up going, I don't agree with that, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. So, yeah, it's definitely um, all barriers are off right now. Yeah. And so in an effort in this, really, my podcast is trying to help people and, and I think, um, you know, to give them some hope and to give them some some tools and some strategies. And um, and, and you started by uh, sharing some notes with me in advance of our chatting about this need. And I second it is, you know, how do we get parents to uh, alleviate the I think fear uh, fear that their child's falling behind or this isn't going to be recoverable, uh, that this is going to somehow be lifelong detrimental to their, their learning journey, um, and, and the guilt they feel that they have some sense of responsibility that, you know, if I was a better parent or if I wasn't spread so thin with my other commitments and needing to attend to my job requirements, that if I was somehow doubling down, that this would be a better experience. Therefore, I have to guilt myself or punish myself or beat myself up mentally for how this is going right now. How do we give them relief from that? Hmm. 
<laughs> just taking a, a deep pause on that one. Um, <laughs> I, I can give you, uh, I'll give you some thoughts, um, and, but also know that I'm not immune to it. I'm really good at um, offering advice and and still the first one to guilt myself. Um, we also know that looking at the research, it's, it's majority of it, it's mom staying home. And so I don't know if there's an actual factor, if this is just my anecdote, but uh, moms are really good at guilt. <laughs> so I think we take on anything we perceive you know, our kids are, are struggling with or that we're not doing the right thing. So um, one of the things I've been kind of thinking a lot about is, I think, first of all, in the media and in general, how we're talking about what's going on with kids. I worry sometimes that the narrative in our, I think, in our attempt to help them and to make, you know, to be aware of mental health struggles and, and how difficult this is, it always feels as if there's this an alarmist kind of attitude where they're failing, they're struggling, like that's what I see. And I worry sometimes that if that becomes the conversation we're having all the time, that they internalize that message. And so it feels sometimes we're breaking down their natural ability to be resilient because they feel like they're supposed to be failing. Um, and so I, I worry about that. So I think it, it takes us stepping back and kind of thinking about, well, what standards? Like, where do those standards come from? I, I critique those anyways on a regular basis, um, but especially right now, right? What are we expecting of the children? We already know that kids develop at different stages that, you know, one child will be reading at five and another one won't really start until they're eight. Um, and that, there's a number of factors as to why that happens. So I think holding ourselves to these standards that are already questioned quite a bit in a normal time doesn't, it just adds unnecessary negative, you know, emotion to us. I also believe that the skills that I see them having to develop right now are actually ones that I've been identifying for, for a number of years that were lacking in our students. And so I wonder if this opportunity will actually make them stronger in the long run. Um, because when I look at students transitioning into first year, for example, which I would say is probably the biggest transition into first year university, even from you know grade eight to grade nine, it's not as big of a transition, but this, this leap into, I have almost no structure, I have nobody watching me, I don't have a parent who knows my schedule and can be kind of on me, I don't have a teacher who's following me with a rubric and, a, uh, you know, and, and giving me all those things. And so students in first year often really struggle because they're not used to, setting their own schedules and chunking out their own work and figuring out if there's resources that are out there to help them if they're struggling and those types of things. They're so used to relying on the structure and the adults that they don't do it for themselves. So I think we're kind of in an opportunity right now where maybe we can be promoting that, helping them build those skills because it's all, <laughs> none of us know what we're doing. Um, and so yeah, we're forced by the situation yeah. to ex to flex and exercise some of those skills. Um, it's a priority now. And it reminds me, and you probably know this story, and I hope I'm saying it accurately. I believe it was the sociologist, um, Albert Bandura, who's a Canadian sociologist. And he grew up in the prairies in a one room schoolhouse and he was a really lousy student and he hated his teacher and he hated his town and just wanted to get away and he never got good marks. And then he realized the only way I'm ever going to get out of this situation is if I take responsibility for my learning. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I can't expect the teacher to teach me. I actually have to teach, learn. I have to take an active role in making sure that I get through this year so that I can get out of this godforsaken situation. <laughs> and it was a real shift in his thinking about agency. And you say that's actually one of the foundational skills that we could be using this opportunity to, to foster right now, given that you know, we're strapped with work and other commitments and we feel like we can't step in and, and play that role for our kids, but maybe that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can't learn how to do some of these things if you haven't gone through the struggle of it a little bit. And obviously this is age specific, right? What my what my grade three can do is very different from what my grade seven can do. But my grade seven has stepped in and helped his younger brother when I'm busy, right? So it's and, and that kind of reinforces for him, do I know the content and can I understand this? There's a, there's a lot of value in, in teaching each other. I'm a big advocate of, of having multiple age ranges working together. They, they learn a lot from each other. And so it's, it's not all negative. I'm not, I'm not in any way taking away from the stress of this experience, but I think it's, it's important to remember there's some good stuff coming out of this too. Yeah. And the other thing I've tried to remind parents is that learning is not something that um, follows the rules of imprinting. It's not like ducks where if you don't teach them how to swim at a certain period, they're never going to swim their entire lives. That we we really are striving for lifelong learners and that it's an accumulation that happens over time. And we might be on a slower trajectory right now, but we're not fated for a different destiny uh, in our educational journey to, to you know, this is a, a hiccup rather than something that's catastrophic. And it's not just a hiccup that's happening in our personal family, meaning some kids have a really awful year when their parents divorce or they have to have some major surgery. Um, this is globally happening to all students around the world. And, um, and so, yeah, that trajectory is going to look a little bit different it's not to say that we it's not recoverable well and there's certain foundational pieces of knowledge you do have to kind of build on i always use math because it's <laughs> a because math is not my strong suit um, but also because i think you know you need to you need to know the basics to be able to move forward but a lot of what we learn in school is really not about the content i know teachers don't like to hear that i remember learning for the first time that if a student sits in my class for an hour, they'll remember three things when they leave, if they've been paying attention <laughs> um, and how discouraging that is. Um, but when you think about that, if you think back to your own childhood and what you remember from your classes, you don't remember specific weird units or you know that kind of thing. It's the process of it. It's learning how to communicate. It's learning how to improve and and like look at what I did wrong and then how do I get better from this? Um, and all of those things are are happening now, even if we're not in class or even if we're only doing half the amount of content in a day or whatever it is, those foundational um, skills and competencies are still happening. Um, and I think in the long run that'll that'll work out for them. Yeah, and and also I think in this generation, and we're without the pandemic, we're looking to shift um, educational focuses in our reforms is, you know, if you want to know, uh, you know, where, you know, whatever, which is the largest Great Lake, you can Google it, you know. And so to your point about learning how to be a learner, how to get curious about something, how to explore a topic, the, the process of learning, those underlying skills are, are still humming along 
even though maybe the rote memorization piece isn't. You know, another tip I just gave today, and I'd like to, to hear your opinion on it, is I, I was suggesting to parents that in order to not feel so overwhelmed, both for the students and the parents alike, to reach out and have a private, not during the Zoom classroom, a private conversation with the teachers and say, right now for this next whatever quadmester or before the next report card or whatever the unit you might want to break it, chunk it down to, say, what, what are the few core elements that I need to make sure that my child is strong at. And so, and for some people, it might be math and saying, you know, really the focus for this period is to really nail down those times tables and maybe for English that you read every day and do some reading comprehension. So they just share back what they remember about the story. Yeah. They might be not paying attention in front of the zoom camera for the full day. And they might be texting their friends and it's driving you crazy that they're multitasking and that they aren't as attentive as they can. But if we can hone it down to let's at least as a bar, make sure that these couple of things um, can, can get absorbed and understood and that maybe the way that the teacher is able to reflect upon whether or not that learning happened is one test and two assignments or something and not, as you say, all these little daily activities and things that, that grind into family life and fighting, uh, that that may be sufficient. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of things I've been thinking about. I mean, I critique education as it is on a regular basis in a positive way. I love education. I just think there's a lot of things we could do differently. I, I was thinking about my own childhood and I was raised in a house where my mom was a nurse. And so shift work was the norm for us. And so things never happened when they were supposed to, right? It, it was always set around one parent was sleeping or, you know, whatever it was going on, or I had a babysitter or that kind of thing. Um, and I was thinking we can, we can really learn a lot from the parents that maybe are used to not having this rigid schedule um, or reaching out and, and listening to the people that are homeschooling already because many of them have jobs and they're working and they've got multiple children um, just to learn tips from what they've been doing. But there's a great video that I shared with you, Allison, that I think you'll probably put in your notes for this uh, session, but it was, it was made by a principal in Ontario and it was, it was a permission slip for parents. And she basically said, you know what, parents, like we get it. Like half of us are parents ourselves. Um, do what works for you. If your kid can't sit here for six hours, then let me know they're gonna be here in the morning and that they're not gonna be online in the afternoon. Or uh, a friend of mine, we've both been off um, with our kids at home. So we meet every Tuesday afternoon outside in parks and just go for walks at a safe distance. But just to give the kids a chance to connect with each other and us to connect with each other so that we can kind of check in and see how we're doing. Um, and they're not at, at school on those days. So I, I think the schools are really embracing this personalized, flexible learning. And I think you need to do what works for your student. I had students in high school last year in the spring that, you know, the parents are like, I can't get them to come onto the computer. Like I can't, <laughs> I can't make them do their work. Um, and I, I worried about some of them, right? Some of them, their greatest happiness and purpose came from being an athlete, for example. And so they had lost that and they were really struggling with motivation because how do you, you know, how do you do it when you lost that piece of yourself? One student, normally a really great student, kept saying, I'm really sorry, I'm just having a really hard time, you know, doing this stuff. And I said, Well, why don't we focus on one skill? 
let's focus on, she really wanted to focus on working on critical thinking. So every time she did something, I would make sure to focus in on that specifically and on what she had done and how she could build it. So we kind of focused in on specific goals for eat for themselves if that was what they needed. So I think you're right. I think you need to be advocating for your family. I think if the child's old enough, they should be doing it for themselves, maybe with your support, but it teaches them how to do that moving forward. And if they're little, have them involved in the conversation. So it's not always you, you know, the adults making all these decisions, the kids are part of the conversation and are agreeing to the terms that are being made. I love that. And I, I agree. I've, I've always recommended that when you're having a parent teacher meeting, that if the stakeholder and again, going to agency in the learning process, uh, it's really about the student and supporting the student. So you really need them there as the stakeholder in those conversations. And I know parents are worried about like, well, I, I don't want to say things in front of my kid. And then I'm like, well, maybe you need to think about what you're saying. There's ways to be to give honest feedback without being punitive or, or shaming. That's just, you know, honest dialogues about where people are having struggles and, and getting everybody on board. And I'm so grateful that there is the, the the situation has forced it that there's so much more flexibility that we probably should have been enjoying even pre-pandemic in terms of uh, different um, uh, individualities mm -hmm. in learning styles and um, and ways to reach each individual student kind of where they're at. We often underestimate young people, I think, right? We don't want to hurt them. We don't want to, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but there is nothing more powerful than having the student in the room going, yeah, I didn't do my work. <laughs> I didn't hand anything in. Um, you know, it's great for mom and I to have a conversation and, and figure out when the next due date is. But if that child or, you know, older student hasn't committed to it, they still might not hand it in. And so having them in the room and calling them on it is one of the fastest ways. Like I had a student last year who handed in nothing <laughs> for a long time. Um, and I sat down with him and I said, listen, what's your goal? Like, where are you going? And he had us, he knew exactly where he wanted to go. Um, he just wanted to get his, his, uh, his high school done. And then he knew where he was going next. And it wasn't into a you know, program where he needed high marks. And I was like, great, you still have to pass this course, which means I need some work. Um, and so we worked that out, right? But if, you do, if you're always doing it for them, then you're going to keep complaining about the fact that they're not buying in, right? It's it's much better to get them involved. Yeah, so I, I, I love that. And, um, it, you know, in the spirit of trying to quell parents' fears, I think one of the common things that I hear is they're just not working hard enough, mm -hmm. that the motivation is down. And I knew if they applied themselves more, they could get better marks. I mean, I hear this all the time. Mm -hmm. And when you try to counter with a, a, an answer of good enough, that parents just seem allergic to hearing that. And I think they need someone like yourself who, you know, comes from your uh, expertise and on the educational side to give permission to your point about these permission slips to get a permission slip to say uh, that if the if the child is motivated to reach the goal and the goal is 60% because that's all the program is, that's okay. We can maybe learn from them sometimes, I think. Um, 
as we're all having our type A burnout. Yeah, I would love to have every student want to do everything all the time. But I'm like, what's why are they doing it? Right. The ones that come into university are the ones that have been successful. Right. By all standards, they've made it. They are intense beings. They do not know how to turn it off. They will fight you for like a half a mark because, you know, everything matters. And I totally understand that. But they also lose the the why we're learning. You know, I'll give them an assignment. They're like, okay, but what are you marking? Like, where's the rubric and where do I get the marks? And then the conversation after is always, well, why did you take 30 marks away from me? And I'm like, whoa, you started with zero. And I, you earned 70 and here's what you did to earn them. And here's what you would want to focus on to move forward and, and get better. Um, but there's the way that we've structured everything. It's, it's a, it messes with them a bit, but we also need to lay off, right? If they've done the work sometimes and they handed it in, then good for them. <laughs> right? um, yeah. It doesn't always have to be perfect. And they're going to have certain things that they're going to, they're going to love and they're going to put a lot of time into, and they're going to have other parts of it that they probably won't love as much. As you were saying that I was, um, you know, thinking also about one of the other resources that you sent to me that, um, uh, which was a letter that you yourself wrote to your students that I thought had some really important content in it you know, which is, again, more from the student's perspective of this intensity, if they have been accustomed to considering themselves a student of a certain grade point, and that's been part of their identity to whatever, be an A student or uh, whatever, and now their marks are plummeting, that that, that also contributes to their poor mental health, um, because kids make this mistake about grades and their personal worth and value. And, and that's, that's what we call stinky thinking. Um, can, can you share some of the content of that letter? Yeah. It was so again, I'll letter, post it, but I, I typically would do it in person, as I kind of say in the letter, um, where I have this conversation, especially with first year students, but I've started having it every with every class at this point, um, because they're they tie their value um, and their self-esteem into their marks. Um, by the time they get to me, it's such a part of who they are that if something doesn't go the way that they want it to, and as I say in the letter, it will always do that when you come into first year. Um, or if you're learning new content, it's hard to learn new things. And they've been taught partially through the process that as long as I do all the boxes, I get perfect. Right. And then and there, there's no sense of um, seeking mastery, which I'm a huge um, proponent for. But they also just are devastated when they've missed it. And the average mark range where people drop from in first year is 20 to 30 percent from what they had coming in. So it's devastating watching them in October when they start getting their marks, their first marks back. Um, and so I'm, I'm writing to them saying, listen, it's just a mark, right? <laughs> and it's it's a place to start. And if you wanna get better, then you then you focus on that. You go visit, you know, when we're in, in person, you go visit your professor, you review the test with them, you go back over the assignment and figure out where did you, where did you miss things, right? Look, if you're getting feedback and hopefully you are, then read the feedback. Um, but they're not used to that. And I was teaching in a high school last year and handed back some assignments and one of the students made a comment, oh good, I don't have that many comments because they've been taught that comments are always negative. 
And I've taken this to the local board that I'm in in relation to report cards because I have a son who has a learning disability and I got his report card and I, I refused to show it to him. And I went to the school and I said, listen, there is not one positive thing in this report card at all. It's all negative, right? It's all the things that he's done wrong. I'm like, every report card should be like a talent um, kind of work appraisal that we do as adults where this is where I see your strengths. Here are the things I saw that you did really well. Here's where you need to focus in the next section. Um, and so when they've been taught that feedback is a bad thing and that, you know, it's all about ticking the boxes and they're, they're missing the bigger picture of what learning is really about. And then as learning gets harder, they don't have the motivation. Philosophy, for example, if I'm teaching philosophy, it, it hurts. Like I've asked them, I'm like, how many of you have left a classroom and your brain hurts because you were so pushed that it literally, and they're like, no, I don't think so. <laughs> and I'm kind of like, okay, either you weren't engaging or um, we we're breaking down something somewhere along the way. Right. So I think they can, they can really uh, learn a lot from, from learning how to get better and focusing more on that mastery component. Yeah, so I have a personal story. When I went to first year university, that was the first time I had to do my, my very first um, exam where you had to fill in the, 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 do you know what I'm talking about with the little yeah. lead pencil and you have to like pencil in the little square and then it gets read electronically. We never had to do that in high school. And so I wrote my first test ever as a university student and they posted the grades outside the um, prof's office and I'd only gotten like 53%. And I remember thinking, wow, I studied really hard. How hard is university if I worked that hard and I, and I still only got a 53? Like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to be a student. Well, as it turned out, they had read, I didn't even think to challenge my mark. <laughs> I just accepted that university is hard and I didn't study hard enough. And it turned out that there was a revision to the mark that my card had been read wrong. And I ended up, you know, getting closer to an 80 or something. But it was amazing how much my expect, I worked so much harder that next term thinking that, wow, university is really hard. I didn't even know I had that much more in me to study. And I know certainly my daughter has said um, her marks went up when she started hanging, hanging out with them um, in her second year, she was in a house instead of in residence. And she was in a house with um, women that were in engineering. And mm -hmm. she said, mom, I just didn't even know what good studying looked like. I developed all these good habits from these other people around me. Yeah. And so you yourself say that as parents, we model as well to us that, that we play a role as, as, as modelers of that too. So can you speak to parent modeling around this yeah. specifically to this kind of crazy time? That uh, yeah. I think um, one thing that I've, I've appreciated, and I think it's something, I don't know, take that guilt down a little bit for all of us is they're watching us, right? So if we're wanting them to learn how to do these things and we're wanting them to learn how to chunk their time and set boundaries for themselves and maintain their own mental health and reach out to friends and all those things, they need to see us doing it. So, you know, parents are stressed and, and I mean, everyone's job is so different. I'm fortunate that my job is flexible. So I can kind of work my schedule around what my kids need to a certain extent. Um, I know if you have to be on a, you know, on the job from, you know, eight to four or whatever your hours are, that's considerably harder. Um, but I think even you asking, 
whether it's your boss saying, is there some flexibility in my day because I'm at home with my, with my kids? Or is there flexibility with the school that we could be doing homework at night if we have to? Um, that shows your kids what they need to do for themselves moving forward. Um, I have over 600 students. So I've learned over time uh, to, to set boundaries. I'm not answering your emails on the weekend. I'm not answering your emails in the evening. It, it protects my time, but it also teaches them how to be, right? It teaches them that they shouldn't have to be working at three o'clock in the morning all the time or things like that. Years ago, I actually changed my syllabus so that instead of asking for deadlines, there's a huge, there's always huge debates about deadlines. I started asking my students for what I call professionalism. And so I started saying, listen, this is the deadline, this is the due date, but my expectation is that if you notice ahead of time that you've got too much going on, your projects are all bumping into each other, whatever it might be, I want you to come to me and we'll discuss that because that's what jobs are mostly like. There's hard deadlines, but there's also me going to my boss and looking ahead and going, you know what, three weeks from now, you asked me to have this thing done. There's no way it's going to happen. I'm going to need an extra week. Um, so them learning how to do those things um, is really important. So them watching you do those things is really important, right? My kids are in the background right now. And I said, when my door is closed and I have a sticky note on it that says, I'm, you know, shh, don't come in. Um, please try to keep yourself occupied. I'll be out when I'm done. So they learn you know, how to set those boundaries for themselves. And I think just doing those things, protecting our own time, doing work when we need to do it, taking that guilt off ourselves and showing them that, you know, sometimes we have to do work and we're going to be busy and that's okay. Um, it's, that's what they need to be learning. And it'll take their anxiety down a lot if, if they're watching you do that as well. Yeah, and I, and I think that um, also goes back to your earlier comment about what's the narrative about what's happening right now. And if we feel like we are victims of a bad situation and this has been unfairly done to us and how can anyone survive? I think that gives them permission to adopt that mindset and say school's a joke, this year doesn't matter, none of this is going to count. Mm -hmm. And of course your motivation is, is going to go down. So, you know, if we have that, yeah, no, we're being agile, we're making accommodations, we're being professional in how we juggle what we need to do and being responsive. I love that. Um, uh, reaching out in advance rather than, you know, because again, I hear the complaint, well, you know, it's due on this due date, but the teacher doesn't really mark it as late until it's three days later, which who doesn't conclude that that means it's actually due three days later, right? Everything right. works up to a deadline. Well, and, and again, there's that whole, um, nothing, nothing makes them own it faster than me going, I didn't get your thing unless you talk to me, you're not getting a mark. Oh, yeah. Own your mistake. Like, tell me why it went wrong. <laughs> well, own your mistake. And, and that's, that's one of, as you're saying, one of the learning opportunities during all of this is, uh, and it's painful for parents to sit back and learn and maybe painful for students, but there is a benefit in, in experiencing some failure, recoverable failure, but yeah. sometimes we'll fail. Sometimes we'll get a zero. Mm, I think it takes that, but they need to, not to sound punitive, they need to believe it'll happen. But they also need to believe that there's going to be a recovery or some, you know, that it's, it's there's forgiveness built into it. So just it reminds me of when you're a kid. I don't know if everyone did this. I know I did. It's when you're a kid and you stole a candy from the from the variety store. Right. Um, and my mom marching me back there for my five cent candy and making me tell them what I nothing. I've never stolen a thing since. Right. Nothing. Nothing changes your perspective faster than having to own that. So. 
That's, you know, I have a very similar family story. It wasn't me, not that I didn't get into other shenanigans, but I remember my mother hearing this crinkling sound in the backseat of the car and looking back and my brother was unwrapping a caramel that he had stolen and she same took him back and, and made him apologize. And the woman at the store said, no, no, he's so cute. That's okay. He can keep it. My mom's like, no, you're missing the entire teachable moment here is that he doesn't get to keep it. And I do think that as we parent our kids and, you know, we ask them to put the dishes in the dishwasher and they don't. So we do it for them. And we tell them to put their clothes away and they don't. So we do it for them. And they get this expectation of authority figures and, and uh, their understanding that they think their teachers are going to say, well, if I don't do my homework, she'll let me have it late. And it's like, no, actually, that all those little parenting moments of holding kids accountable and having them mm -hmm. experience the consequences for their choices is all part of what weaves into our interface with the bigger world, which includes our, our academic classrooms and our, our world in the workplace. Yeah, and it, and it works for the young ones too. I mean, I've been talking mainly about high school and, and older, but with my eight-year-old, um, I'm trying not to guide his days every day. We're, we've actually moved into more of a homeschooling routine um, based on the curriculum, but there are days where he will spend the whole day gaming <laughs> and and I'll come out after having done work and I'll be like, so what did you do today? And, and he'll be like, well, I didn't really do much of anything. And I was like, well, how do you feel about those choices? Like, you know, in relation to what we've set out as your goal, what does that mean for you tomorrow? You have twice as much work you're going to have to do or, or whatever. So you can have these conversations with younger kids. It doesn't always have to be the older ones. Um, and sometimes we have to call their bluff. Right. I had a student last year in grade nine every single day when we were still face to face coming in. Oh, I hate school. Right. There's this sense of I have to be here. I don't have a choice. My parents. I said, why do you come? Well, my parents make me. I wouldn't <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, and, and I kind of said to him, well, what what if, what's the alternative? Like, what would it look like if you didn't come? What you know, he's like, well, I'd stay home and I'd sleep. I'm like, OK, for how long? Um, and we had this conversation and then COVID happened. And I remember reaching out to him through email and I said, what do you think about school now? He's like, man, I wish I could come back to school. <laughs> like, <laughs> I didn't was know so how boring. great it was. Yeah, I didn't know how great it was. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, so I know you got to get back to your kids. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that uh, you had wished that we had covered or, or some mm -hmm. uh, anything else to add to the conversation that I might have missed? Well, I am a, a, including, I think um, Allison's going to share, I made up a couple of visuals. Um, I reached out to my students and I reached out to, I have a lot of um, friends who are educators and they came up with a really, I kind of compiled it, but a really great set of things that they thought parents could do to support their children. And I think it's important to notice when you read through those that none of them are dedicate your life to every moment of your life being about them. It was, you know, step back, be a safe space and let them, let them talk, right? Let them vent if they need to. I know for my kids, it's always at nighttime, right before they're supposed to go to sleep, which drives me to distraction, but that's when they unload, right? Or my son and I will go for walks and he'll just talk, talk, talk away. Um, I think it's important to remember some of the behaviors we see, there's something deeper, so if, if they're saying, I don't want to do school, it's too hard, it's too whatever, 
maybe unpacking, are they struggling with navigating the system? Are they, are they not sure how to figure out when the due dates are? Like, what is it that they're struggling with? Because a lot of the time we think they know how to do these things, but we haven't actually explicitly taught them how, either as educators or as parents. So looking at the behavior, I know with my son, when, especially when he was at school, he'd come home and he would just unload on me some nights and we would get into it. And then I'd kind of step back and be like, okay, something bigger is happening here. right? And it would come out later that something had happened at school and this is how he was responding. Um, but the points that they make are, are not about us sacrificing ourselves, but more about how to give them what they need in a way that's, you know, that's responsive and still empowering to them. We don't have to do it for them all the time. The other thing I was chuckling, um, you had sent me some comments from, from um, parents about my kids being goofy, my kids making faces in class, my kids texting their friends while, while class is happening. And I had to kind of chuckle because I was like, first of all, all that happens in the classroom too. This is the barriers now. coming down again. So your kid <laughs> is, is spinning in a corner at school also. Um, but if the teachers are not stressed, don't stress, right? If the teachers are concerned, they'll reach out to you or you could reach out to them and be like, is this distracting or that kind of thing? Um, but they're all doing that all the time. At Western, the students have running chats happening in the background while we're teaching. And I have to turn my mind off that because it's hard to you know, not let that get to you. Um, but I've said to them, well, if you're gonna have that going, then help each other out. Like if someone's going, I don't know what she's talking about right now, um, then use it to be like, oh, well actually here's what she needs, you know? So I'm like, or point it out to me that you don't know what I've just said. Um, so I think we see, we're seeing things right now that were already happening before. Um, one of the educators, especially for the little ones, they're like, get them fidget things, right? Have them in their environment because they're going to spin, they're going to twirl, they're going to fall out of their chair, <laughs> whatever they're going to do, right? So um, it's okay if they're, if they're listening. Um, my son, for example, he, he has to move to here sometimes and I remember talking to a teacher and she's like he you know I didn't think he was listening um, and then I asked him and he could recite back everything she had just said he just needs to move around to do it right so I think it's important to remember that they're not necessarily behaving any differently than they would normally you're just getting more insight in what that looks like I saw a great video that's again this uh, you know peer-to-peer -peer life hack support from a parent who had a fidgety kid and they took her bicycle and they lifted up uh, the back wheel so she could get on and ride her, her bike and the back wheel is spinning so she's not going anywhere. But it means that she got to be in, in movement while she was watching the online class. And I know there's actual research that says you know, that, that movement actually improves learning and that if we could actually get kids on treadmills or bikes or whatever during class time, that it would be better for them. So this idea of just, you know, sit still and don't wiggle is really from an adult perspective and that a lot of this is self-soothing and coping so that they can pay attention and, and we shouldn't uh, dismiss something that they've creatively figured out for themselves. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, they're they're going they're logging into to school from their bed. I'm like, so like at least they logged in, right? Focus on the on the positive. As long as they're as long as they're there and they're trying. I mean, half my students are in their beds when they're when they're online. So um, I don't I focus on the things that 
that matter like and don't don't nitpick on the smaller things i think yeah yeah that's that's great advice and to and to your point the, that we can only build on strengths and positives we have to get out of that deficiency broken mindset um mm -hmm. always but most especially during a pandemic and not just for our kids but for ourselves too we're doing a lot more right and good than we remember as parents on a day-to-day -day basis we we will be okay yeah exactly yeah Oh, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, and uh, good luck with the rest of your teaching endeavors, your, your own schooling endeavors, and helping your kids through their online schooling. Thanks, Allison. As you know, it takes a village to make a podcast. So thanks to my team, including Max Cotter, my editor and technician, as well as the crew at H2O Digital. This podcast was recorded in Toronto, Canada. We acknowledge the land we are meeting on is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.